Episode five, like Torah, baby. You know, and we're gonna we're gonna knock them out now. Pentateuch of episodes. Ooh, ep five. Ep five. I like that. I do. There's I something do. magical about that number five. Probably because I can I can count to that on one hand. Yeah, I think so. I don't have to think to go to the next hand. Yeah, I knew a guy who could count to six on one hand. It's pretty cool. Whoa, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did he wear a glove? No, but he really should have. What was that? Uh, Princess Bride. What yeah, was his Princess name? Princess Bride. The the man the with six uh, fingers. Count. count, count I was going to say Count Duca. No, not Count Chocula either. <laughs> um, what was his name? I I can't. Someone text this in for us, please. You know, we need to know what is the name of the Count and the Princess Bride. Yes, Mandy Patinkin. Count Mandy Patinkin? Well, I think that's who played him, right? I think we should call him Count Mandy Patinkin. Can I even say his name? Mandy Patinkin. (laughs) My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Well, welcome everybody to Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church, the only podcast you will ever need. I am Mark Chaffee, your friendly neighborhood podcast cruise director, and I am here with my good friend, boss, pastor, master of all things cool, David Gadini today. First time that's ever been said about me. What, that you're a pastor? The second time that's been said about me. (laughs) You are the master of all things cool. That's why I invite you into my home, this intimate setting. To do podcasting. questions you never thought you could ask in church.com, which is the place you should go if you want to uh, text in some questions um, and text in good ones or it, bad ones, weird ones, arcane ones. What are you struggling with today? What are you thinking about today? Text them on in. Go to our website. You got it right there as well. I thought you were asking me for a second. <laughs> What are your questions today, Mark? What are you struggling with today, Mark? Well, really? All right. Deep okay. thoughts, right? Right. This is a, yeah. this is counseling session yeah. with Mark Chaffee, everyone. You called me last minute on a Sunday night. Right. Right. Hey, let's record. Okay. <laughs> we'll do it because we love the listeners and we love each other. <laughs> Don't take that the wrong way. Yeah. So, um, do we need anything else up front? I'm feeling like, see, this is what happens when I feel like I don't prep. It's just kind of like. Yeah, uh, yeah. You need to warm up more. Yeah, it's not even like a warm. It's Walk more like a couple laps. Yeah, yeah. Mental prep. Yeah, that that's what it is. Just kind of getting yeah. in that in that mindset. Well, you know, flow. we we plug the website, we plug the uh, the social media outlets. Yeah, Mark, tell me what kind of ways can people uh, get their questions to us today? Well, you know, David, there's several different ways. Thanks for asking. Uh, there is the website questions you never thought you could ask in church.com. Go there, submit your question. You can find show notes for all the past episodes there as well. Um, you can also text in to our text in phone number, which is 815-314-0363. Again, that's 815-314-0363. Just remember, guys, anything goes with this. Questions on God, life, theology, the Bible, Christian doctrine, Christian history, the church today, the intersection of all things in the universe with it. We'd love to hear what you got. We welcome the arcane. We welcome the heretical. We welcome the serious. We welcome the frivolous. And uh, we will do our best to, to, to tackle your questions and, uh, and help you on the way. Ready to do this? Let's do it. All right. Here's a question that came in from the 847. 
Please explain the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. Yeah, big shout out to our people in the northwest side of Chicago, or I guess I should say the suburbs. I think the Jefferson Herbs. Park people are still like 773, right? Uh, or is yeah. that 708? No, no, 708 is like Hillside and Melrose Park and all that. You know way too yeah, much. That's You're, really confusing. You're going to really confuse the non-Chicagoland people I, here. I know, but for those of us who are here from the homeland, you know, it's just like... Our Indonesian listeners are going to be like, what? Right, right. No, no, so the uh, the unforgivable sin. Um, state the question for me again, Mark. Sure. Please explain the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so basically this is a... Um, something you see Jesus references. You could go to Mark 3 on this. Um, you can also go to Matthew and Luke, and I never remember, I'm doing this off the top of my head, if it's Matthew 10 and Luke 12. I got that backwards. It's actually uh, Luke 10 and Matthew 12. Um, these are all parallel passages of this. And and the context of the the passage is that you see that the, the religious leaders of the day, the people who should understand who Jesus is more than anyone, are refusing to believe despite all the evidence pointing to the reality of who he is and they above all people should be getting this and you realize really quickly that their reason for rejecting jesus goes deeper than wisely wrestling with the evidence it goes deeper than than theologically trying to discern in, in, in an honest pursuit of truth you see it goes deeper into something more nefarious that they're rejecting him despite the fact that the truth is staring them in the face and so what jesus says depending on the uh the gospel that you read it in is something to the effect of you know all sins will be forgiven and, and this is this is foundational to christianity that that where, where sin increases grace increases all the more as paul puts it that there is no sin outside the realm or the purview of god's forgiveness that his his grace and his forgiveness forgives the worst of sins and the worst of sinners no ifs ands or buts which makes this passage really odd because jesus says you know all sins will be forgiven mm-hmm. all blasphemies he says against the son of man will be forgiven Mm -hmm. but the blasphemy of the holy spirit will not be forgiven and then depending on the gospel you read it'll qualify it or 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 better put play it out more neither in this age or the age to come and other such things i mean and let's just face it for for anyone who's who's um a devoted follower of Christ and who spent time in his in in, in the Bible and, and and it approaches the Bible with an idea that this is the actual word of God and that it's true. This is kind of the, the scare the crap out of you moment. Yeah, no I mean kidding. this has been um a pivotal passage in my own faith development. And I can dig into this so much more deeply for the listener who needs to connect the dots. But let Mm -hmm. me just start by saying the simplest and most reasonable answer to this question is that what Jesus seems to be indicating is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the gift of salvation that God's offering. See, it's the Holy Spirit who brings us to faith. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us to God and through which grace comes to us. So if you deny the Holy Spirit in your life, it's not just saying a curse word with the Holy Spirit's name attached, but if you you you, you are purposefully resisting and, and, and casting off and denying and even blaspheming any attempt of God to get into your life and move your heart to salvation, well, you're casting off faith. Mm-hmm. You're casting off faith. Now, does that always mean it's is it intentional or can we unintentionally blaspheme the holy spirit and it gets us in trouble in the end you know i wouldn't think of blaspheming the holy spirit so much as a singular act Mm -hmm. i love how the 
the writer of the Hebrews puts it, where he talks about how those who fall away cannot be brought back to repentance, which is another one of those scare the crap out of you kind of passages. But but I think there's some um, insight that can be gained out of that passage in interpreting this Holy Spirit one and the idea that cannot be brought back to repentance. If you are repentant, that means you have not severed the pipeline of the Holy Spirit in your life, that God is obviously still alive and working in your heart. So if you are repentant, you can be confident you have not done this, gone over the deep end or the cliff, so to speak, the point of no return, if we can put it that way. Sure. Those who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit probably don't give a rip. And I mean, you can go through periods of unrepentance, certainly, but that doesn't mean you're completely close to the Spirit. Of course. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Number two. Why doesn't God just get rid of Satan and his demons? <laughs> Wouldn't that be fantastic? Be awesome. Why doesn't God just get rid of sinners? Hmm. Okay. Paul writes a letter to some friends at a church in Turkey, and it becomes the divinely inspired, flawless word of God. Was Paul aware, and are we certain? How do I explain divine inspiration to others? You know what, uh, what struck me interesting about that question is the word flawless. Because that's a word that's never used in Christian theology to describe the word of God. Ever? No. So where does this uh, term you hear people talk about the inerrancy of scripture, things like that? Is it inerrant different than flawless? Yeah. And I think some of the difficulty is the way that all these terms get thrown around somewhat loosely and that they begin to think, people begin to think of them synonymously with each other. These words like inerrancy, um, words, um, well, you know, this one here was, was flawless, for example, but there's so many others in the lexicon and vocabulary that get thrown out as well. Um, and they're not synonymous terms. Inerrancy, for example, is not the same as infallibility. How so? Like, what's the difference? How are they? Well, defined? again, I mean, we we. How far do you want to take the, the the rabbit trail down? But let's let's deal with the question here on the table off the bat. Um, the person who texted and brings up two words, flawless was one, and at the other they said, "How do we describe inspiration?" Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And then with that, there's these assumptions of infallibility, inerrancy, and and in the person's mind, there's probably a collusion of all these words coming together. Let's take flawless to start. Mm-hmm. What does flawless mean? Does flawless mean that the, the, the New Testament writer is using flawless grammatical Greek? Hmm. Does it mean he's always using the highest literary form that the language has to offer? Right? What does flawless actually mean? Because something can be true and flawed. It depends on the categories you're talking about. A diamond is still a diamond if it has flaws in it. A diamond is still a diamond if it has flaws in it. Sure. But it's not worth as much. So, what are we talking about as having flaws, or what are we talking about as being flawless? Yeah, uh, you know, that's great. You know, so let's take that word out. Okay, let me read the question without that word. Okay. Paul writes a letter to some friends at a church in Turkey, and it becomes the din- din- uh, it becomes the divinely inspired word of God. So was Paul aware of this, and are we certain of it? How do I explain this divine inspiration to others? The other interesting part of that question is the way that the person phrases it is, it becomes the, inspi- the, the, the divinely inspired 
word of God. So does that imply in the person's mind that it wasn't divinely inspired as Paul was writing the letter? I think the question was, was Paul aware that it was inspired as he was writing it? Yeah, yeah, uh, probably yeah. is yeah. where they're going with it. Yeah, you know, there's so much written on this topic, and uh, you know, and and I really encourage the the listeners to to dig into this deeply if these are things that you've wrestled with. But divine inspiration has always basically been understood is that when we read the scriptures, God's voice is here. God's voice is present. This is something that is communicating on His behalf what He wants to say, and that it's fundamentally true. Mm-hmm. So you think of the Old Testament prophets who claim to be prophets or oracles of the Lord, the thus saith the Lord. It, it's certainly the prophet speaking, but he right. claims to speak on God's behalf. Of course, the million dollar question is, is he or not? Yeah. Well, they thought they were. Mm-hmm. The people who received it, at least over time, believed they did, even if it was rejected in the moment by those who didn't. So it depends who you're talking about. Who, who, who's viewing it? Who's who's asking this? Who's wrestling with I this? Love, I love that so much because I always think to myself, I, honestly, I have this, this picture of like, I think to myself, did Paul really know? No, I, I don't, my gut, obviously, this is just my gut saying this. I'm like, I don't think so. I think it's like, hey, he had an experience. He met Jesus on this weird road to Damascus type thing, and his life changed. He's excited. He wanted to help people out, and he's just doing stuff. I can't imagine he was like in his mind thinking, because <laughs> if he was honestly thinking, oh my gosh, people for thousands of years are going to be reading this stuff. <laughs> I seriously put this in print? Right. He's like, yeah. okay, well, yeah, I kind of, yeah, they're not going to understand this because, wait, if they're reading these two letters to these churches that I sent, yeah, they're going to get confused. You know, he, he might have done a better job of editing. Well, you know, and, and it begs the question, too. Paul wrote more than the 13 letters we have in the New Testament. Right. He even references other of these writings. Um, what we call First and Second Corinthians is often thought of as possibly being Second and Fourth Corinthians in reality. Really? Um, oh, there, there, so cool. There's the possible letter to the Laodiceans, for example. Mm-hmm. It's debatable. Um, but, but certainly others that Paul seems as though he's written, which did not make the cut or are not part of the <laughs> canon. You know what it reminds me a lot? It reminds me of this podcast. How many of these are we going to leave on the cutting room floor going, oh, man. man, that was schlock, right? Yeah, but you know, at least we get to decide. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know I imagine Paul's looking back going, oh, oh man, you chose that one? <laughs> but this other stuff was so good. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I might have gotten more respect in the church if you would have chosen the right ones. Hey, listener, let me help you out simply here. We believe that the Bible is true, that what it's communicating is fundamentally what God wants to tell us. It's not all God has to say. It is not comprehensive in what God has to say, but it is what God wants to tell us for the purpose of salvation. And that when we come to this with this posture of humility and this posture of receptivity towards it, God works through these otherwise bland words on the page to do some really kick butt work in our souls and in this world. That's the short. That's good. Ah, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. Was that Dumb and Dumber? That was Dumb and Dumber. Well, are you talking about the movie or just, were you just exclaiming that? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm just dumb and dumber. No, no, no. Just, yeah, we'll, we'll apply that. We'll let, Mark, we'll let our listeners sure. apply yeah. however they want. <laughs> not only are you dumb, Mark, you are dumber. That's okay. I've been just, called worse. Just way to pull out the, nine, what was that, 94? 92? <sighs> yeah, early to mid-90s. I could Google it. Way but to pull it out of the archive. That would take effort, man. Yeah, it would. Yeah, let's not, let's yeah. not. 
yeah, spend the effort there. All right. Here's a third question that uh, came in. Was the sequel to Dumb and Dumber, Dumber and Dumberer, actually the worst sequel in history? Yes. Yeah, that, that is so easy to answer. Yes, absolutely. This one comes in from 773. Different denominations have different beliefs and rules. Since we can't know for sure who is right, is there a core set of beliefs we should all follow? Um, yes, but I'd also like to challenge the idea that we can't know for sure what is right. That seems like a very, very wide-sweeping blanket statement to make. And what the Christian church has always done historically was to test the teachings of any individual congregation, leader, self-proclaimed prophet, or, or, mm. or movement against the Word of God. Right. Let's go back to the question we had a moment ago with, with the inspired word of God. You know, e- even in Catholicism, where they elevate tradition to, to an interpretive level and matrix of the word of God, there still is a running back to the word of God to test and to sift that which is being taught. So there is a way to go, is this movement, is this, this, this line of thinking or this line of teaching true or not? It's not going to give you comprehensive answers to every little detail that comes up. And there are certainly gray areas and, and room for maneuvering within that. But, but let's not be too, too broad sweeping. So it's not necessarily, not saying that necessarily a right and wrong when it comes to denominations in general. Obviously, you have your extremes, your outliers, but, you know, whether the Mesp- you know, Mesopotamians and the Presbyterists. Yeah, yeah, know, exactly. I mean, you know, are, you know, you know, asking, you know, who is right, which body, you know, which denomination right, which one's Let's wrong. Qualify it. Let's yeah. qualify it. Who is right on what? Who is right on what? Instead of looking for one denomination to be the paragon of truth, Mm -hmm. individually sift each teaching propagated by that denomination. And oftentimes you will find, more often than not, commonality Mm -hmm. between the denominations than difference. We like to highlight our differences. We want to be unique. We like to be antagonistic with people around us. But but when you get down to it and look at the grand scope and worldview of what the different denominations teach, over 95% is, is going to be in, yeah. in relative harmonious and agreement. I, and I think, it, and, it, yeah, and not to interrupt you, but I'm going to because <laughs> I think that's actually what the listener was actually saying when uh, asking, um, you know, is there a core set of beliefs that so, we should all follow, meaning all the denominations? Is there a core set of beliefs that do draw us together? Yeah, there is a core set of beliefs, and it's a core set of beliefs that the denominations um, do base themselves on, and they're known as the three ecumenical creeds. And whether these creeds are, are said in your church or in that denomination any given Sunday morning or not, they nonetheless stand behind is, is, is the commonality and bulwark of, of the Christian faith. These creeds are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And they were statements of faith that were developed in the early days of the church around these differences of belief that surrounded those who were claiming to be Christians to, to, to kind of find that lowest common denominator, what is the core of our faith and what are the non-negotiables? And I just encourage you, if you don't know these or if you've never read these, not only for the historic value, but for, but for the, the, the value to your soul and your own spiritual development, Google them. Apostles Nicene, Athanasian, spend some time soaking in them. And, uh, and I think something will be interesting for a lot of our listeners as well, that it may challenge some of the assumptions we bring to the table and realize in our own thinking we're outside the bounds of the Christian faith. Yeah, and if you, uh, you know, what we can do is we can actually, some of those maybe 
hard to spell nicene how do you spell that n-i-c-e-n-e we'll put it on the website too for we the, can the put it up notes. there but yeah. but you know be brave be bold sin boldly you know, sin boldly on Google. You, you type anything close, it's going to correct it for you. I mean, th- these are not esoteric creeds that, that, that are unknown to the uh, the Internet universe. Yeah, we should actually probably do. Uh, I've been noticing as I've been looking at these questions where are, there are quite a few uh, creedal questions that have been kind of coming in. Mm, OK, um, kind of root stuff and. Um, not necessarily, you know, maybe we'll devote an episode to it, you know, an entire episode just on the just creeds. Just about the creeds, yeah. Because obviously there's so much interesting stuff. Like, I, I'm sitting here, I'm wanting to ask you, what's the history of the creeds? And, you know, I mean, we could rabbit trail this forever because I do find that fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we'll table that for now and I'd love to maybe come back to that at some Let's point. Let's do it. Yeah, definitely. Well, I will do- follow that up then with uh, this creed question that uh, came in. It says, the creed... It uh, doesn't say specifically which one. I'm just reading what the, the question said. The creed says that Jesus descended into hell. What did he do there? Yeah. If you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it was conceived by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. And it's fascinating that in the Apostles' Creed, which is the oldest of these three ecumenical creeds, that uh, that line doesn't actually make an appearance, at least according to the uh, um, the written record that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't see it popping up in the textual uh, manuscripts until the fourth century. It's not actually part of the, the proto-Apostles' Creed or some of the original formulations that you found around it. That doesn't make it wrong mm-hmm. by any means. But the question is, what is it getting at? Well, remember that in the Greek language, what we translate hell is actually Hades. So he descended into Hades, and depending on which tradition you belong to and which church body uh, you happen to be in, you'll find it expressed in different ways. Um, Roman Catholics, uh, Orthodoxy, Lutheranism, and, and many others, you'll often find the, the, the straight-up hell translation given. But, you know, you go into a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church, and, and again, I'm not um, I'm saying every single one, but just generally speaking, you'll often see it translated as something like he descended to the dead oh, the or dead, yeah. descended to the grave mm-hmm. or something of that nature. Right. And so the, the question is, what is this creedal statement getting at? Well, one school of thought would say what it's getting at is emphasizing that Jesus actually died. That, that, that when he died on the cross, he actually went to the grave like we go to the grave. He experienced the fullness of death, and it's trying to, to, to emphasize that and to, to just iterate that. So we're not necessarily saying, you know, we're putting our interpretation of hell when we see hell. It's like, it's not how we think of hell in modern terms, maybe. Well, the other school of thought would approach it as saying okay. it is hell, at least within the the, the schema or, 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 or purview of how we think of hell today. But if you of that school of thought, what's important is that no one in that school of thought would argue that Jesus goes to hell to suffer mm. or to atone for us more. Because to go down that line of thought would seem to make the cross insufficient for what Jesus did. It would seem to render his cry, it is finished, you know, it's accomplished, to telestai right. in the Greek, is being, well, it's kind of finished, it's but I got, almost it's done. almost finished. Got a little more work to do, guys. 
So, um, you know, the best interpretation that I've seen for it, uh, and the one that, that resonates deeply with me, and I think that has a, just a whole lot of merit, you could reference passages like First Peter 3, but uh, um, just, just theological strains as well, is that just as when in invading army overthrows the enemy, they often go to the capital and raise their flag. Hmm. So Jesus bringing the kingdom of God ends his work by going into the heart or capital of the kingdom of darkness to raise his flag and say, liberated, this is my territory now. It's, it's, it's VE day. Right. If I can use the, the, the world war two mm-hmm. analogy, um, of storming Berlin yeah, and finally winning. One quick follow-up then is, um, is that concept even of, uh, Jesus dying, going to hell, is that biblical or is that something that the creedal writers just decided? Yeah, this is probably what happened. This sounds good. We like this analogy <laughs> of him going and claiming ultimate victory this way. So we'll stick it in there. No, no, no. It, it is biblical. Okay. And uh, and I'll point you again to First Peter 3. It, it's, it's arguably a very confusing kind of convoluted. What do I do with this passage? Mm-hmm. And and uh, I won't give you the specific verse on it because honestly, read more than a verse. Um, mm-hmm. Just jump in and read the whole chapter. But you, but you'll see this this discussion of Jesus going to the spirits who were in prison from long ago and 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 of course then beyond that it, it stays in the the, the strain of Jesus um, the kingdom of God uh, the advancing assaulting kingdom of God coming in Christ being the predominant theme of the Gospels that echoes throughout Paul and Revelation and everything else as well so so it works both in kind of that textual sense and it also works in that theological motif. Cool. All right. We should probably get a fun one in here for this All right. episode. What's our fun question for today? Is it a sin to put ketchup on a hot dog? Yes. Okay. Done. Okay. Listeners, can I just encourage you? <laughs> Don't do it. There'll be times when your friends are putting ketchup <laughs> on their hot dogs. Don't do it. <laughs> there'll be times when everyone around you is doing it you are called to the narrow path there will be times when it presents itself it's cheap it's easily available beautiful girls and beer commercials proclaim the ketchup on hot dog as being the secret to the joy of life don't do it it is only a path of ruin and destruction and you will regret it someday Yes. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, if you really are going to do it, don't do it around other people because you don't want to cause your brother <laughs> sin. <laughs> I got to respect those places, those hot dog stands that you do see in Chicago. Um, you know, Mark and I are here in the suburbs of Chicago. And uh, um, for those of you who are in the city proper, not people who are in the suburbs and Sam from Chicago, but those yeah. of you who are actually from Chicago and you have those hot dog stands that actually refuse to put ketchup out or put it Which on. Which they should. There are ones that you always hear. These are like <laughs> urban legends. I, I've never had these verified, but but you hear of certain establishments again and again where like they'll actually like yell at you or chase you out <laughs> if you, you out. even ask. And, and yeah. they should. They're right to do it. I mean, it's just uh, it's do, wrong. do you know it's actually National Hot Dog Month? Is it really? Yeah. Did you see what Heinz did? No. I think it's Heinz that did it. it it's it's a Chicago brand only. They right. released something, a condiment, a new hot dog, a new, put it in quotes, <laughs> hot dog condiment called hot dog sauce. 
No. It's what in is a, it? It's in like this purplish gray kind of container. It's not yellow like like a it's mustard. It's not sauce or made out of hot dog, is no, it? Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dad, can you give me some of that hot dog sauce? I want to put it on my steak. It's great. It's called oh, hot dog sauce. And, and like the label I saw, and I, I hope this isn't made up. I've never been in a restaurant that saw it, where I've seen it firsthand. But it actually has like, um, you, you know, the, the, the skyline of Chicago in the yeah. background. It's ketchup. It's ketchup brilliant. that you can serve in Chicago without calling it ketchup. Gosh, I don't know if I sh- if I should be offended or if I should just be oh, blown no, away man. by the brilliance. I, I, I think it's fantastic, but that's how Satan works. Now, See, that's how Satan works. He's a deceiver. And this is what we have to be careful of. <laughs> he presents things to us that seem like easy, alternate, acceptable ways. Wow. But, but guys, can I just encourage you again? Avoid the ketchup temptation. A ketchup under any other name. What if they made Are you ketchup? Shakespeare on me? You know, Shakespeare ate a lot of hot dogs. And um, probably, and he was actually known to um, get into some trouble because he he did like his hot dog sauce and uh, which was ketchup. Uh, but he would actually uh, tint it with uh, with flowers to make it actually yellow instead of red because he'd try to get away with it. I don't even know why I'm saying this. It's <laughs> hey, yeah, I mean, it's like it's like coming so out of my <laughs> just coming out of my mouth, and don't I'm like, block it up, let it free I'm flow, like, baby. <laughs> It's like verbal diarrhea or something. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> Somebody plug that guy up. Hey, listener, we're praying for you in this hot dog thing. And I think we just went like 10 minutes answering a hot dog. We went deeper with the hot dog question that was. These are the questions that touch on us as, the question, as believers in the 21st century. The ones that matter most. All right. Um, so why don't we. See, I, I didn't even keep track of like how many serious and how many kind of fun ones we did. I think you're overthinking it. I well, see that the reason I'm overthinking is because I didn't underthink it earlier. Gotcha. Or I didn't Got think it. it over. You know. Yeah. You overthink when you don't think it over. That's oh, oh another well t-shirt, played. man. And that is another t-shirt. There's a tattoo for you. And I literally just forgot what I even said. What did I? It was good. It's gone forever. Except on tape, which isn't really tape. Oh, I guess I can go back and listen. Have some, I have these moments of brilliance sometimes, and just, yep, but people don't know it because it's all in my head. And normally, I'll say something like that when I'm in a room by myself, and I get yelled at for talking to myself, and then and then you forget it. Yeah, and then it's gone. Or because you got yelled at, you get emotionally scarred, and it shuts down all creativity. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. Okay, want to land the plane? Let's land the plane. Let's land the plane. So, Mark, sign us out here. Well, folks, that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. Go to our website, Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And remember, don't ever, ever put hot dog on a ketchup sauce. Wait. Take care, guys. God bless. <laughs>